so thankful that you are here with us this morning. I want to get uh, get business out of the way right away. I got a number of compliments on my shirt. Uh, if you could call them compliments, most of them are, so are you going on vacation right after this? And that doesn't seem like a bad idea, to be honest with you. But uh, the, the reality is, I, I one time I said to myself, I said, self, if we ever get a 65-degree day in January, you got to wear a Hawaiian shirt to preach. And so here we are, right? And, uh, and the reality is, I'm just ahead of the game on the whole climate change thing. Because Pennsylvania is the new San Diego. And so, so five years from now, you guys will all catch up. You'll be wearing, wearing Hawaiian shirts, and, and we'll figure it out, and we'll have a really good time. But no, I, I hope you're enjoying warm weather. Uh, we, we took advantage of it. We actually went for a nice bike ride with, with my two boys. We have a six-year-old, eight-year-old boy, and uh, just uh, love being able to do stuff outdoors with them. And we, we decided to take this like couple-mile bike ride the other day with them. It was the first like big bike ride, so we were excited about that. Because usually we just ride around the corner, you know. So we went on this big bike ride and uh, you know, get the kids all strapped up. I've got like a backpack on with lunch in it and everything. And so we start out at like 9.30 and we, we, we you know, start pedaling. We get like three minutes down the road and we pull up to, to a spot where you can like see and, and take, a, take a little look. And the boys like stop and, and they're looking and we're like, wow, isn't this really cool? This fog's coming up over the lake. And, and the one boy goes, yeah, I think it's time for a lunch break. <laughs> it's 9.45. We're, I can see the car. We, we are nowhere near lunch break stoppage right now. So I, I love it. I love raising kids. Um, I love it. I love it because we get to see growth happen, and growth to me is an amazing thing. I love it. Um, and growth comes with pluses and minuses. You're figuring things out. Things are breaking. Things are things are being learned. And that's that's sort of us as a church right now. As we grow, you know, we moved into two services not too long ago. We're figuring stuff out. And we're going to break some stuff here and there. And we're, we're going to learn some lessons and we're going to keep going to see what God has for us. And so that's what that forum's all about coming up, where we can talk about some of the stuff that we're looking at. See, we break stuff. And most of it's my fault. Um, but that, that's what that forum's all about. It's about some of the changes that we've talked about before, um, looking at changing our name from Susquehanna Valley Evangelical Free Church just down to Susquehanna Valley Church, which is what most of us say anyway. Um, and it's looking at making the membership process a little sooner. If you have any questions about that, we'd love to be able to interact with you. We'll actually give you a little form at some point, a form for the form. If that's not confusing, I don't know what is. But we give you a form form that you can fill out in advance if you have any questions or whatever that we'd love to be able to just anticipate some of what's going on there. So um, I do have another piece of good news to let you know about. Uh, as a staff, we talk about things that come in as possibilities for us to do all the time as a church. And there are loads of opportunities. Like pretty much every Sunday, there's an opportunity for something we could do as a church. And one of the things that is difficult is we want to do all of them. But if we do all of them, we wouldn't do any of them well. And so what we've decided is sort of we steal this idea from Billy Graham, this what we call laser focus, where you can have light that's broad or you can have light that's intense. It could be a stadium light or it could be a laser. And we're, we're going to be a laser-like influence on this world, one of the things that God's called us to. That doesn't always mean that we're going to do big and grand things, but we're going to be picky about what we choose to do. Um, and so one of the small things that we're like, yeah, this is an awesome thing. Um, is the sock drive that we did over this past December that Nina and her family are all about. Um, I just want to thank you again because w we were able to give 522 pairs of socks to the homeless community that's in Harrisburg. And that's 522 warm feet. Actually, that'd be 1,044 warm feet. I think if my math is correct. 
Uh, but but that, like, to me, that's a small thing, but it's a big thing. So I'm glad that you, you care about that. I'm glad that that made its way into your holiday shopping, uh, and we hope that that continues. And speaking of hope, our series this morning is called Aspire, that we're kicking off. Aspire um, it is a word that means to direct your hope. Oh, we got, hey, look at that. It's in the wrong series. That's all right. Uh, so pretend that doesn't say unwrapped up there. Just pretend it says aspire. Aspire is this idea that we direct our hope in life that we have the ability to think about and to influence what we hope for in life. That's an interesting thing for me to think about because I think most of us, we let our hope be influenced by circumstances, by situations, by attitudes of other people, by things that other people have said, by whether or not we've done well in a class or whether or not we've gotten a good review on a job. Our hope in life is dictated by other things that are beyond us. And what the scriptures teach us is that hope can actually be something that you have a large say in, that you can direct it. And so I want us to be a people, I think God wants us to be a people that direct our hope. So we're going to talk about a book in the next three weeks, uh, the book of Revelation, that's really about directing your hope, aspiring for what, what we should aspire for in life. See, I think that what we aspire in life is what you hope for, and what you hope for is what you plan for, and what you plan for is what you sacrifice for. What you hope for is what you plan for, and what you plan for is what you sacrifice for. So if you control your hopes, if you, if you direct your hopes, then I think it directs all of your life, and all of life falls into place. And so I'm curious, I, I don't often do like a show of hands thing, but how many of you like have ever read straight through the book of Revelation? Just a show of hands. Okay, cool. How many of you understand it all? Keep your hands up there. Okay, because I was, I was seriously going to say, you can come up and preach this morning if there was a hand, and no, no hands, so I'm on. All right, let's go. Um, the, the, it's, an, it's a fascinating book, and, and really to me, I love it because it brings so much of the scriptures to a place where, where it all seems to fit together and make sense, but, but there's a lot of trickiness as we look at it and we read it, and I think the key is this, is not figuring out every detail not figuring out every detail and putting a name with a situation or a name with a person, a character in, in the story of, of Revelation. It's definitely not the timing. Like if anybody starts talking to you about, I know the time, like you just make up an excuse. I give you permission to lie in that situation. Just like, oh, I'm sorry. You don't even need to watch. Just be like, I'm busy. I got to go. If somebody starts telling you the time that these things are going to happen, because Jesus himself says, I don't even know the time. So I'm not going to guess the time, and I'm certainly not going to listen to anybody else who does, right? So, so I think the key is not figuring out the who, what, when, and where. I think the key is asking the question, why did God tell us? Like, why did he give us this information? What is it about this book that we should, we should know and how should it change our life? So that, that's the way that I'm going to look at it uh, from that perspective because I think there's a why with the book of Revelation. This to me is, is kind of the overall why is that I should aspire, I should direct my hope for endless security that brings an end to my everyday insecurities. I should aspire for an endless security through what God promises in the book of Revelation that should bring an end to my everyday insecurities in life that I shouldn't take it so seriously when something goes wrong, that I shouldn't be so easily irritated or upset so quickly because what God promises is so secure and so forever that right now can pass by without being that big of a deal. That endless security should influence my, my everyday insecurities 
because I aspire, I set my hopes, I direct them towards something greater. Now, as we, we go into the book of Revelation, I just want to give you kind of four insights. I went three, but went four. Um, so four insights that I think will help frame this for us. The first thing is this, is the Bible is really written to be understood. It's written to be in a common sense perspective, that if you read it, it, it it's going to make sense. You might have to understand some of the background of what's going on there. But within that speaking, uh, within that is, is the idea that sometimes symbols will carry some emphasis or they'll help move the story along. And so we'll do our best to kind of break that down. Second thing I need you to know is that the, the book of Revelation is, is written not to begin a new conversation, but to, to complete an old one. The book of Revelation is not starting something new. It's really this progressive talk throughout the Bible of the story of what God is doing with humanity. And then you get to the book of Revelation that is bringing to an end. And so if you're familiar with the scriptures, especially in the passage we'll read this morning, you, you'll hear like eight or nine, actually 10 or 12 different things that are references to the Old Testament, things that have happened long and long ago. Uh, I like uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a, a professor, and his thoughts on this, where he says, there are over 500 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So honestly, I think for me, one of the reasons I don't understand Revelation as well as I should is because maybe I don't understand the Old Testament as well as I should. So the second thing is not beginning a new conversation. Third and fourth thing go together. There's a narrator whose name is John. He's one of the close followers of Jesus. And, and the narrator, fourth thing, is extremely distraught in this scene. He is, he is just wailing. In fact, the way that the text reads, it implies that he is just in total despair, as in the greatest despair that he has ever or we would ever experience in life. And he's upset and he's distraught over this one central idea that something needs to be done and it can't be done because there's no one there to do it. Something needs to be done, it can't be done, there's no one there to do it. And they're searching for someone to do it. They're searching for someone to open a scroll. The scroll is this contract, think of it as a will, the right to an inheritance, that there would be the, this scroll which stands as the will to inherit all of history, all of humanity. And John's looking at the scene and saying, if no one is able to inherit this, then everything we do is for nothing. There's no hope. He's in despair because there's nothing to aspire if nobody can open that scroll. Uh, Oxford professor G.B. Caird says this, he says, until the scroll is opened, God's purposes remain not merely unknown, but unaccomplished. Unless in the end, right obviously triumphs over wrong, faith is just in God is just an utter illusion. See, until, until it's opened, John is distraught. If no one can open this, there's no one to account for evil. There's no one to rule over the world in justice. There's no one to oversee the fact that there should be life after life. That anything good that you've ever done really bears no significance if no one can open the scroll. Nobody's ever made the world a better place. Nobody's life has ever fulfilled a purpose and a meaning. If no one can open the scroll, it's all for nothing. Anything you good you ever did was just to be good in the moment, and then it passed and it's done. And one day, everything in the world will just all cease to exist when the world destroys itself. And so John's in total despair. If no one can set right to be right, and no one can judge wrong to be wrong. And so he's looking for one to open. And I'm always fascinated when I read a novel or I, I watch a TV show or a series or a movie where they're searching for a one. I call it sort of this Messiah complex. They're looking for a, a savior. 
They're looking for an anointed one. They're looking for a chosen one. John's looking for the one. And that's the scene in Revelation 5 where, where it hinges on finding with either significant celebration or significant despair. And so Revelation 5, we look at it with that perspective. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to, to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that we get to consider a future, that you give us this insight into the future. I pray, Lord, that it would inspire us to live confidently, to have so much security in you that our insecurities just begin to fade away. Lord, I know that's not going to be a momentary thing, but God, I think the more confidence we have in you, the more we, we aspire to what you teach uh, and what you show us, I think the more that we hope for you and the more that changes our life. We ask that in your son's name. Amen. So there's this sudden interruption to the weeping where the scene from despair turns to a scene of celebration. Uh, and in one sweeping statement fulfilling like 90% of the Old Testament prophecies, Jesus steps forward. And he takes the right, he, he takes the scroll, and, and the, the elders forbid any weeping from that point on. I, I want to kind of break down some of the significance of the way they, they described Christ, if you can just bear with me for that. He's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's described as the root of David. Um, and so Revelation is, is kind of like, um, do you remember as a kid, I don't, when I was a kid, we watched the Robin Hood cartoon? Do you remember that? With, it, was, it was like there was, Robin Hood was a fox, and then uh, Little John was, what was he? He was a bear, I think he was. Uh, and I don't know why Little John's always big. Like, is that a thing? I don't know. Um, but th it was this cartoon where uh, Robin Hood is fighting for the people because you've got a king who isn't supposed to be on the throne. Like, he's ruling, um, and he really shouldn't be ruling. And scripture presents the idea that that's Satan that he rules when he shouldn't be ruling. And so the, the, the cartoon anticipates constantly the return and the arrival of a king who will deal with corruption, who won't rule for selfish ambition, who will stop being just inconsiderate and oppressive to everybody he oversees. Th there's going to be a king who comes back, who rules rightly, who deals with corruption, who deals with all injustices. And that's the sense that Revelation 5 uh, points out that there's this king who comes back. And as he inherits the scroll, he begins the process of restoring everything to the place where it should be. And so he's the lion of the tribe of Judah because he's, he's humanity's fullest hope. And as the lion is this symbol of majesty and cunning and strength and courage, Jesus grabbing or, or taking the scroll from the hand of God the Father is that symbol of a lion. But he's also the root of the root of David, which if you're a New Testament person, you, you remember there's a scene where uh, some some of the religious leaders are trying to disprove that Jesus is the Messiah. They're trying to put holes in, in his story. And, and so they're asking him questions to try and stomp him. And oftentimes Jesus will flip the tables and ask a question back on them. 
So one point he goes, he goes, hey, you guys, uh, you guys believe David is this great king, and you believe David, uh, you know, he's awesome. He says, hey, let me ask you a question. Whose son is the Messiah? And they're going, well, David. David's going to be, you know, it's going to be his lineage. And then Jesus goes, right. So how can, how can David pray to the Messiah and say, the Lord said that my Lord sit at my right hand? He, he says, wouldn't, wouldn't it make sense if, if the Messiah would come after David, but then we see the Messiah comes before David? So how does this work? And the, the, the religious leaders walk away just extremely confounded, and they, they can't understand this, that how the Messiah could be both after David and before David. He's the root of David, but he comes after David. And the scriptures are pointing out that, that, that Jesus has always existed. He didn't just show up on earth to become a man, but he's always existed. He's always been God, and he's the root of David in that anything good that has ever been known of King David as he's been a, a king who cares of the people, who leads with a heart after God, anything good of David originates within the root of Jesus Christ. And, and so you got John, as he narrates, as describes Jesus as the strong and mighty, relatable, compassionate king. And so my question as you consider this is, is who do you trust your after here with? And I know we don't always like to think about death and the reality of it, but I do enough funerals that I feel obligated to ask this sort of question. I do funerals for people of all ages and all stages, some of them accidents, some of them it, it's expected, and they've gotten to live a long life. Others, that's not the case. And uh, Man, I just would love for you to consider this question before then. Why you have breath. Why you have a mind to think. Who are you going to trust after here with? Because you won't be able to arrange things at that point. You won't be able to plan. This is one of those things that's outside of your control. Like you're going to close your eyes in this life and wake up and, and, and who do you trust for what happens next? And what Revelations makes the case for is that Jesus Christ is the best bet for you. He's the safest place. He's the one with the right. He's the one with the ability for you to put your hope in. That he would be the one that you trust in. I, I, I love uh, the Ecclesiastes that says that God has set eternity in the human heart. That we have a sense that there's something after this. And I've talked to even the, the most hardened atheist, and they'll slip in conversation, and they'll say, well, I know they're in a better place. And I'm like, wait, well, how do you know that? Like, how do you have a sense that there's a better place and that they're there if you're telling me you don't even believe in God to begin with? Like, how would you? Well, I, I would argue because Ecclesiastes says God set eternity in the human heart. That we have a sense and idea that there's something after this. And my hope and my plea is please trust Jesus Christ for that. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the symbol of majesty and strength. And he's, he's, he's the root of David. He's the source of everything kind and compassion. And, and so he steps forward in Revelation to take the scroll. And I want you to see how the idea of this kingly presence is now con contrasted with a different perspective, a different symbolic representation of him in verse 6. It says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Everybody else bows down and he approaches the father and takes the scroll and inherits the right to rule over all of history and over all of humanity. 
See, there's no doubt that this is somewhat of a strange thing. You've got this, this, this sheep that has seven horns and seven eyes and, and seven spears, and I think that confuses us. And this is the stuff that, that tends to turn us away from the book of Revelation without looking at it. But again, what you look at is this is not beginning a new conversation. It's, con- it's completing an old one, an old one that goes all the way back to when rams meant, or when sheep meant something, when, when the idea of sevens carries significance and, and horns and spirits really carry significance. And so let's sort of bring that out where lamb is just rich in biblical lineage. Like it's just throughout the scriptures that God sees humanity as imperfect from their sin and wanting to provide something to cover that, they would, they would take a lamb and sacrifice it to stand in place of their sin. And so Jesus appears, this kingly, majestic lion looking like a lamb that's been slain. A fascinating concept. In fact, the word for for lamb in the Greek, the Bible is written in Greek, so we pick up some insights that way. Um, There's two different words for lamb. One would be like an adult, mature lamb, which is previously most of what would be used to describe lambs in the Scripture. But then there's this, this word for this gentle, young, innocent lamb which is a word that they pick up for Jesus. So you have this young, innocent, pure lamb barring, barring the marks of really a sacrificial death. And he's got seven eyes, seven horns, and seven horns is to signify the power and the strength, the royal status, and, and seven eyes are representing this complete vision that he has that there's nothing he doesn't see. There's no injustice that he doesn't observe in this world. I was sitting in the, the uh, truck waiting for my wife to come out of a store the other day, and, uh, and I watched this woman put her shopping cart, you know, taking stuff out of her shopping cart, and, and she turned around and it just took off. And it went, it went probably, like, I'm not gonna exaggerate, it probably went like 10 miles an hour down through the, the parking lot. And I was just like, this is bad. This is not gonna end well. And there's this brand new Jetta sitting in the bottom of the, like they parked away to avoid anything. It's like, oh no. And it hits it right, right on the side fender. Big old dent right in the side of it. And it's just like, oh, that so stinks. I actually got it on video if you want to see it. Because I was like, I, I know this is going to happen. I, I couldn't have gotten out and helped or I would have. Would, I wouldn't have. I'm not, I can't run 10 miles an hour, okay? Um, it, had a, it had a head start. But I was watching this and I watched it unfold where the woman like goes down. She picks up her car, puts the stuff back in. Another guy looks at the car who had been in the parking lot, and he kind of is like, he tells her to just go away. And, like, and then she goes back, gets in her car, and just drives away. And I was thinking, like, man, like how, how unjust is it for the person who just bought that new car? And how many things like that go on throughout the world where we or other people are the victims of injustice? And what Revelation tells us, what it conveys to us is that God notices all. He, he waits to judge and give mercy as he gives mercy and to give, to give judgment. As he does. And that's the seven spirits idea that the Holy Spirit moves throughout the world to work in, in God's perfect execution of his plans. So you know what you have in this, this lamb who is also a ram who's got these horns and these eyes. You have this idea that Jesus is pictured as slain yet triumphant. He's slain yet triumphant. He's the lamb who looks weak and bears all the marks of defeat while at the same time standing with the pride and the victorious nature of a lion who's won. 
He's a lamb like lion. He's a lion like lamb. He's, he's impossible to oppose, but he's safe to, to approach. Impossible to oppose, but he's safe to approach. The triumphant one. And where the cross is a symbol of shameful defeat, it's a pride of victory to those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who believe and hope in him. I don't know if you realize this, but in Revelation 5, you actually you somewhat have a, a role here. I mean, there's some personal significance here because your past makes an appearance. Like all of the mistakes that you've ever done, all the, all the sins that are, are part of your life, all the guilt, it actually showed up in Revelation 5. I don't, I don't know if you caught that, uh, but what Christ is doing where he's, he's bearing the marks of sacrifice, is he's showing that he has paid for the sins of our past. Actually, the sins of our future, too, if you want to get theologically deep. Um, he's, he's showing that he's paid for our sins. And so when you read Revelation 5, there's personal significance there. There's sort of this note hidden within it that your own debt has been paid off and the receipt stands forward in the future. That it's there. And so what cleans up your mistakes, what cleans up your past is not ignoring it, it's not forgetting, it's not running from it, it's not avoiding it, and it's not pinning it on someone else. Unless that someone else you pin it on is Jesus Christ, who literally took our past to the cross with him and nailed it there. Your past makes an appearance in the throne room of God as a receipt on the body of Jesus Christ, and his victory is offered to stand in yours. His victory in place of your sin your past judged by him. This is the simple message of the Bible, that you receive forgiveness of your sins, not because you're a good person, not because you've done all the right things, not because you gave 522 pairs of socks, or not because you gave so much that we were over budget and could help more people in our community. No, you are forgiven of your sins because somebody else paid for you. Somebody else took the bill. Not too long ago, I was, at, I was at Ted's, and I was getting some wings with some guys, and, and I went to pay my bill, and, and the waitress is like, actually, somebody else paid for that for you. Like, wow, that's incredible. And that, that was for wings. This is for life. Someone else paid the bill, and if you, the, the scriptures say, if you believe, Jesus says, whoever believes has the right to inherit life after death. You believe me, you live forever. There it is. And not because you earn it, but because you believe it, that Jesus Christ stood in the place of you, that he took, your, he took your payment. This text, by the way, is riddled with the idea of permanence, that what happens, happens, and it's done. Like th This is complete. It's perfect in the idea that there's no doubt that this will come to be forever, and, and the idea of what John's trying to do is he's wanting us to rest in something. Remember, it's not so much the what and the when, it's the the why. Why? Because God wants us to rest in this. He wants us to rest in endless security so that our everyday insecurities don't seem so significant all the time. He wants us to find endless security that puts our everyday insecurities in their proper perspective, which is this. We live in the good news of victory, not the aftermath of defeat. In the good news of victory, not the aftermath of defeat. He won. And that should transform every day. That's, every morning we should wake up and go, he won. It's done. Every time my kids annoy me, I have to keep in mind, but he won. He won. 
And our response should be the same of what heaven's is. Where the second he takes the scroll, they just praise. It's a scene of adoration. They actually sing a song, which we'll look at next week. Next week is going to be a really cool service. Uh, we're looking at how God unifies diversity. We're going to celebrate that with the Nepali church that shares our building. So they're going to actually play a song to end the, ser- the, the service. So please, you know, don't, don't, mix ne- don't miss next week. I think it's going to be a really cool time. Uh, but, but the scene in heaven just erupts with this praising where he becomes the center of heaven's adoration. And I think he should be the center of our own adoration and life as well. Where, where heaven just breaks out in this, this not scripted, this just automatic cheer. It's like you're watching your favorite football team, you're in the stadium, and they score a touchdown to win, and you just, you just go crazy. That's the scene in heaven. Have you ever done that? Have you ever cheered? My, my wife makes fun of me endlessly for this because um, this past year I caught a really big fish. And so like, let's get the picture up here before we keep going. There it is. By the way, you will see this picture once a year, every year that I'm a pastor here. Just maybe sometimes two or three times. Just get used to that. I'm going to brag about it. Um, that is the fish of a lifetime. And I, yeah, so I'll tell you the fish story another time, probably next week or the week after. Um, but get used to that picture. When I caught that fish in the middle of this like pristine, quiet mountain lake, you can see it, it's a gorgeous lake there. Um, and there's like just a couple people enjoying peace and quiet. Like I literally caught it and I went, yeah! Actually, literally, I think I said, woo! And my wife looked at me like, you've never wooed anything. I will forever make fun of you for doing that. And, and she does. She'll be like, why did you woo when you caught the fish? I'm like, because it was a big deal, okay? I wish I didn't woo, but I wooed, and, and there it is. I cheered in the middle of the lake because I admired it. I was excited. It was a fulfillment. Every, everything that I hoped for in going fishing, I knew that was the biggest fish in the lake. I got it. That's awesome. Like, atheist novelist philosopher, this is a mouthful, Ayn Rand, said it so simply but so profoundly when, when she said this, admiration is the rarest and the highest of pleasures. It's the rarest and the highest pleasures. And this woman who just has no thought of God's existence has this understanding that I think is so incredibly deep of how God made humanity. That your deepest pleasure is in admiration whether it's standing there and holding a giant fish or looking at a child newborn in your arms or looking at your spouse on their wedding day or, or seeing your dream home come. Your admiration is the highest of human pleasures. And what Revelation does is it says your admiration and every little thing that you've ever admired is going to have its fullest weight and its fullest attention on Jesus Christ when he takes the scroll. Every little woo is confounded with this multiplication of millions of people praising Jesus Christ. It's the highest pleasure, and it will only be met in its fullest in Jesus Christ. The, the, the Bible has a word for this admiration concept. By the way, it's glory. It's throughout the scriptures again and again. The Bible owns the market share on this admiration concept because it's talking about the whole of human existence is to glorify God, to admire him. And man, what you admire is what you aspire. What you admire in life is what you aspire for. It's what you plan for. It's what you make sacrifices for. And I hope and I pray that the center of your admiration in life is Jesus Christ. And that you direct your hopes towards him. 
that he's the one who bears all that. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, the significance of how he's able to bear a weight that nobody else can bear in, in, in that concept. But man, I just have one simple, fun challenge for you. to end. it's a Hawaiian shirt day, so I've got a fun challenge for you to end it, and here it is. Like, all right, all right. Stop living like Ben Stein, okay? You know who Ben Stein is? That's Ben Stein. Do you remember that guy? Ferris Bueller's Day Off. This guy, you know what his line is? And Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he's taking roll and he's going, Bueller, Bueller. And it's just like two minutes of him going, Bueller, Bueller. And it's the most boring, monotonous tone that you've ever experienced, you've ever heard. He's literally made a career out of being boring. You can look him up and see what movies he's been in, what shows he's been in, what role he's, he's had, and he has made a career of being dull and boring and monotonous. Man, if Revelation 5 is true, stop living like Ben Stein. Be excited about what God has offered you in Jesus Christ. First of all, get it right with him. Like say, God, I, I have sinned, and I believe that you have taken it for me. I want to live after I die, and I believe that it's you that makes that possible. Get right with him. And then, man, live like a debt's been paid. Enjoy it. Let the endless security that he offers put an end to your insecurity as you live, not like Ben Stein, but as you live like somebody who's living in admiration of the greatest aspiration because Jesus Christ has brought it all to a perfect conclusion. Let's pray. God, you are incredible. Lord, and as I, I pray just as we take a couple extra minutes to worship you this morning, I pray that you would be the center of our admiration. I think it's our highest pleasure. And I just hope, Lord, we dump out our hearts to you. We just pour them out to you. And Lord, I, I don't know what we're like if we're a person that's typically pretty, pretty low-key and monotonous. I just pray that you break that. That we get to sing to you like you deserve. Because a victorious defeated lamb showed up and took the scroll. When he took the scroll, he took the future. When he took the future, he took my past. And God, I praise you that you have dealt with all of this. And I simply get to enjoy you, follow after you. In your son's name we pray, amen. Jesus cast.